The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joe Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 7200. That's 72000 and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 7200 for your copy now. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Why is it that some people make better split-second decisions than others? And how can you hone your own decision-making skills? To answer those questions, Elizabeth McCormick. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Hey, nice to have you. So uh, you have a very distinguished background. You're a helicopter pilot, a military helicopter pilot, right? Yep. Uh, can't imagine there have been a lot of female, well, maybe now, but... but you know. <laughs> it's still not too many now. When I was in, it was less than, less than 1%. So out of 200, 250 pilots, one woman. Really? And now, yeah, now it's about, it's, I've, seen, I've seen different data between 6 and 8%. Wow. Um, is there any reason for that? I mean, a lot of people would say it's discrimination. Is there a re- is it like really hard to do and women don't like going in that direction? Or is there a reason for this? Well, you, first, you got to consider that in the military. So we're talking about military pilots in the military. You have to go through the training and want to be in the military. So when you consider like it's about 28 percent, 30 percent of the military is female. And of that, you have to have the scores. Um, the the testing, the physical, pass the physical, which is very rigorous, um, and then actually get through dunker training, escape and evasion school, and flight school to make it. So like in my class for warrant officer candidate school, we started with seven women and only two finished. Wow. Because of the physicality. And is it the same physicality for men and women? So it was. When I went through, women had to meet all the same standards as the men, and it was much tougher. And what they did is a few years after I got through flight school, they said, well, we, we need to improve these numbers a bit better and uh, created a tiered standard based on both age, gender and age. Yeah. Well, listen, this is not a uh, discussion about <laughs> women in the military and uh, discrimination or uh, otherwise, uh, you know, the whole thing. So that, that's not the purpose of it. But, uh, but you are highly accomplished. 
Yes. Uh, obviously, in uh, in rare company uh, to only be in the top one percent of uh, you know females that, that make it and so forth, and, and that's that's pretty extraordinary. But you also have a very unique uh, you know insight on decision making, and and there's been a lot you know in the press in the last several months, the Kobe thing and, and everything else, the helicopter crash. I'm sure you are asked about that all the time because it's. Uh, it's just so fresh on people's mind and it's such a hurtful situation for so many people. Yeah. I've been everywhere I go. I'm asked about it. Yeah. And it's, it's really a shame. So, you know, well, first let's talk about decisions like in the cockpit and then let's talk about business decisions because I would imagine that there are some overlaps about how decisions get made and how you aggregate information and pick out what's relevant, and what's not, but there probably are some big differences too. Okay. Yeah. So what what are some in a, in a helicopter situation where your world where you came from, what are some of the big things that happen that you need to either plan for or be aware of in advance? Like what's the plan when you get in, in the cockpit? So anytime we have a mission, everything is time on target. So we be, truly begin with the end in mind. So we know we want to land at this GPS coordinate on this terrain with at this time, and then we back plan every single second of every single minute from there. So we back plan all the way back to what time do we have to file our flight plan? What time do we need to get our weather? What time do we need to get fuel? Oh, what time is our passenger briefing? What time is our pre-flight briefing? What time are we pre-flighting the aircraft? All the way to what time we need to show up that day, and what time if it was a big VIP, like when I flew the Secretary of Defense, and some of the really well-known, the governor of New Jersey, there were several VIPs we flew. We would actually fly the entire mission as a rehearsal the day before and then do an after-action review and assess how the rehearsal went and then before we did the next day and then tweaked it. You know, how many businesses do a rehearsal? And <laughs> I'm not, I'm not yeah. making a joke. I mean, I'm asking this in, in the most significant way because – uh, how many salespeople do a rehearsal before a big presentation? How many uh, executives do a rehearsal before a big program in a boardroom? I mean, I would imagine a lot less than they should be. Than they should, right? It really should be. I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, one of the things we would we always talked about is, is if it's not raining, you're not training. If you're not training, you're not. It's not raining. So you're always like constantly wanting to plan in the worst scenarios, and the worst moods, and the worst weather, or the worst. And you would plan as if everything's for real. Well, what happens if this happens? And it's this anticipatory thinking where we're constantly, you know, there's a reason flight school was over a year long. Because we can't think about flying. We need to think about everything else that could go wrong when you fly. So we would rehearse everything for timing and for, for that. But we would also, you know, anticipate. So when I flew the Secretary of Defense, we had a chase aircraft in the back that was empty just in case something happened with maintenance or something happened and we had to come in and swoop in and pick them up and take them somewhere else. So it's knowing and anticipating what else could go wrong in any moment and then keeping, keep thinking past that, like what's next. And if that happens, what's going to happen after that? And what's going to happen after that? And what's you know, continuing I, I, that? I wonder if, uh, you know, certain disciplines uh, like sports, you know, are more regimented. The rules are more clear. The steps are more obvious. And, and doing rehearsals, doing practice is easier. 
uh, maybe in the military because it's it's more regimented and it's more uh, repeatable. Uh, but pe- people in business will say, well, what I do doesn't repeat. But, but you know, it sort of does. I mean, so mm-hmm. do you see a lot of overlap? I mean, can you help us kind of reconcile those things? Yeah. So in my first corporate job, when I got out of the military, I was in inventory management and inventory control. And then I worked my way up to purchasing manager. And then in my last job, I was a commodity manager specializing in negotiating international contracts. When Before going into any contract negotiation, I would have another negotiator um, give them the scenarios and their scenarios and actually teach them their scenarios and have and sit and do the role play. And so we would role play. I would role play an entire negotiation with one of my big French vendors before I flew to France. So I knew what he was going to ask for. I knew what was that, but it was more than that. The first time I negotiated with him, I noticed that when he really, really felt strongly on a point. So again, it became kind of like out of body where you're watching things from the outside and he would get really, really excited or really had something that he could not wiggle on in the negotiation. He would smack his hands on the table and lean up and get really, really, you know, animated. And so a year later, we're going into the next negotiation and there was something I couldn't wiggle on. And I did the same thing. I smacked my hands on the table <laughs> and I, I did this whole thing. And immediately he stepped back and he stopped negotiating, right? He, he laid back on that one. So, it, you know, it's the preparation, it's the notes, it's the after action review. As much as you're preparing before, are you really assessing what happened after? And I think in, in business, we get so caught up in the busyness of the business that we lose that strategic thinking of the preparation and the, the after action to know how we could be better. Well, listen, uh, I love about what I love about this is there's a lot of inside track here on, you know, a, a new way of thinking, you know, better, smarter, faster. I mean, it's, th- this is a really cool thing. So let's go a little further with this parallel. Uh, you talked about anticipatory thinking, what kinds of things, uh, in a flight situation, in a military situation, would you think about and anticipate? And then maybe we can make a parallel for business people uh, when we're done. Yeah. So, so flying the Blackhawk, um, So let's use the Kobe example, since that's been in the news and in media. And even if you're listening to this years later, it's still, you probably remember this. So it's flying in a situation like that with passengers on board. You, no matter who the passengers are, you'd want to constantly be thinking, okay, if I lost an engine, where would I land? So as you're flying along um, and you're flying along a road, with with an airplane, you need like road and runway somewhere to land. But with a helicopter, you're just going to go straight down. So you're constantly looking at what, what your terrain has. What are your obstacles? So like in business, you're looking at what the obstacles and what the objections might be. And then you're looking at how can you divert around them, go through them, or maneuver into that next phase. So and then what's that emergency? You're anticipating all the time. But hel- helicopters don't have, they don't have lift the same way that airplanes, like, <laughs> like they don't glide. I mean, they, 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 they drop out of, if the engine stops, it falls out of the sky, right? I mean, that's yeah. it. It's called an auto rotation, which is a fancy word for a controlled crash. So I, I, um, when I give my speeches, I talk about how, um, look through your chin bubble or like where the chin bubble is, which is down at your feet. Now look at your toes because when you lose your engine, that's where you're going to go. 
<laughs> there is no glide at all. So if you're lucky, you're in a two, two helicopter. I was very happy to go from a Huey, which is a one helicopter, one engine helicopter to a Blackhawk, which is a two engine helicopter, because then at least you had a second engine. <laughs> it's a little safer. So, I mean, I mean, is there anything that somebody in a one engine helicopter can do to be safe? Uh, typically you would fly lower and slower if you can. Okay. So, all right. So they, 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 they they drive them differently. I mean, they, they take them different places. I mean, you do, you would, um, so the Huey, when we had the Huey, um, now it's more in the national guard and reserve. And even those are fading over to, to Blackhawks, but you would fly, you know, medevac and fly, you're flying lower and slower. You find terrain flight. They're not exactly known for flying instruments. Well, 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 look, I mean, I mean, and, and there's a, then there's a tremendous parallel here. If you have uh, a smaller budget and lower end people, mm-hmm. then you can't go into the big, the big time deals. You know, I mean, I've, I've said to some people along the way that you can't yeah. go uh, deep sea fishing with a trout pole. You know, I mean, I mean, you, you have to kind of match your equipment yeah. to your activity and your resources to your activity. And if you do try to up level that, then you've got to have a really good plan and how you're going to do that and, and have all those obstacles overcome and have all those things met along the way. Cause without that plan, I mean, we call that flying by the seat of your pants. If you are just flying by the seat of your pants and reacting to what's going on around you, there's no, you're, there's no strategy driving you. There's, there's no plan. That's probably one of the big differences between smaller companies and bigger ones. As they get bigger, they, they strategize more, they plan more, they fly by the seat of their pants less mm-hmm. you know, because large companies, there's just too much at stake. There's too many people involved to, uh, to, to, to guess at this. But there's also the positive side of being more nimble, right? And more adaptive and nimble to changes that happen in the market or new ideas that come through a smaller company can probably respond faster to some yeah. of those. They just might not necessarily have the capital and the infrastructure in the other place. So I think there's, there's definitely great things about an entrepreneurial mindset and being flexible and nimble and adaptive. And then you having the infrastructure and the, you know, the planning and the, str- the strategy of a larger company. I think they both serve serve the market. They just serve differently. It's very fa- it's very fascinating. I've really never thought that a helicopter parallels <laughs> business, but you know it sort of does. Uh, you know, smaller ones, uh, more nimble, and bigger ones. You know, I mean, they don't go that far. Should be turned into an airplane. I mean, it just it's it's an interesting parallel. So, what other kinds of anticipatory thinking or planning did you used to do? And let's see if we can't make some more parallels. Hmm. So let's see, you've got everything from, you know, weather, what your weather is going to be, which is, is completely reactive. If the weather, which by the way, is everything environmental, the economy, all this external stuff that you don't control. Exactly. Your external environment, right? Yeah. So you have to react. So at the same time that you're planning everything, you're also um, monitoring your markets, the environments, those other things, you're monitoring things. And then as you're monitoring things, you react in minute ways though. So like we wouldn't change our entire plan if we were flying a a general or a VIP, we might not change the entire plan, but we might have to change this piece of it and do something different. How often are you uh, monitoring those external factors? Like for example, how often are you looking for weather changes or because, you know, I mean, if we think about the parallel, the economy changes, uh, the tastes of consumers change. 
uh, you know, fads and trends. I mean, I mean, there are many things that happen that are external in business. How often are you, when you're the, the, the pilot of the helicopter, how often are you looking at, at these changes? Because that, that sort of gives a little tip to business people too. Yeah, we have a great saying. It works good for business. You're going to love this. So takeoffs are optional. Landings are required. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, so, they are. Good one for you, right? But think about it in yeah. business, right? So you can plan, plan. We, I mean, we would get an updated weather briefing as we were on the takeoff pad, like getting ready to take off. We would do one last minute check. Has the weather changed? Is it the same? So our weather had to be, briefing had to be updated within the last 30 minutes prior to takeoff because that's the time to abort a mission. That's the time to amend your flight plan. It's not when you're in the air. But when you're in the air, you could still do it. It's just harder, right? Because you're already yeah, in the yeah. thick of it. You're already in the midst of it. So that sort of, that sort of uh, parallels to like a product launch <laughs> that if it's just not ready, uh, you know, with the media campaigns and all the different big pieces of it that are going to kind of go together, uh, probably better to get it right than to get it fast. I mean, I, I mean, it, I mean, this sort of thing you can't rush it. I mean, I guess there's pros and cons to both sides, but uh, again, uh, very fascinating. Anything mm -hmm. else on that topic? So you've got weather, um, you know, you've got compliance. We have to be compliant with the, we have two ways to be compliant. We have our compliance with the FAA. So as a military pilot, I still have to be compliant with the FAA. And so filing a flight plan and everything through, through our compliance piece. But then also as a military pilot, I have to be over here with our tactical operations center, making sure I have good intel and good data to, as, cause it would be bad if I delivered the general to the wrong location. Yeah. Yes, it would. Don't do, that do you, do you find, yeah, the, the, you know, I'll tell you one of the things that I kind of imagine is that generals don't like being taken to the wrong place. <laughs> people, people, you, people tend to lose, you can't really lose your job in the military, but you can surely lose your um, rank on your sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Listen, I, and you can understand why. Um, people are funny about that sort of thing, aren't they? <laughs> Just a little bit. So, um, do you see a big parallel, you know, like when you talk about, uh, you know, strategy and, and this kind of planning, I mean, I, I just, I see so much parallel with business. I, I'm so surprised at how much parallel there is. This is such a great metaphor. I just, I just love this. Um, one of the things that uh, you said at the very beginning is that you spent a year in flight school, training, 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 so that you didn't have to think about flying. So mm -hmm. a lot of what you do is reflexive or, re or just reactive or automatic pilot or something. It's muscle memory. Muscle memory. Muscle memory. So, so how, how much of what you do is like just automatic and it's just happening whether you know it or not? Well, when you first start off in flight school, not too much. Yeah, not too much. Not too yeah. much, but they kind of layer it. You're doing one thing and then they figure out another thing and then so it's, and it's the same thing in business, right? You kind of got to have to build a foundation and then you add new products or new tasks or new services organically as it goes, that makes sense. So same thing with the skills that we needed to fly. Yeah. Uh, so what percentage of the decisions that you make in the air are automatic pilot in, in just take a guess. I mean, I know there's no computer making a calculation, but is it it's a gonna lot? Be like, yeah, it's going to be like 80, 90% is pure training and instinct. And you have to, tr you know, you trust your instruments. Like if you're suddenly punched into the clouds and can't see anything, you have to trust your instruments. 
Um, you have to trust your instincts. You have to cr- trust your crew. You have to trust. Let's that talk. Everyone, let's talk about the same let, training. Let's talk about this instinct versus instruments <laughs> because they are not necessarily the same. Uh-uh. I mean, they're not pointing in the same direction all the time. Uh-huh. So, right. So let me tell you about um, instrument training. So one of the things that we would have to do in instrument training is they would put us in this seat that was like elevated up on a dais and then we would strap in and then they would have us put our head down and they would spin us and then they would stop it and they'd say, walk. (laughs) They would purposely put us into all kinds of visual illusions and then get, show us instrumentation and we'd have to quickly read the instrumentation and know where we have to go and respond and move it in the right direction or walk or be able to function even in the midst of vertigo or spinning or the leans where you think you're leaning, but you're not because you just lean too long in that spot. So we had to constantly um, do that, but that's part of the training too, is to know when, when is something giving you false data? When is something not right? When is your body telling you something different than what you know here? And when do you know that that instrument might be wrong because there's an instrument failure and you can trust your body? So you sort of, (laughs) from practice, get a sense about, you know, whether you should rely on the instruments or use your instinct. I mean, that, that kind of becomes muscle memory too, in a certain way. That is a pure experience. I mean, you can train, train, train it, but until you're in an actual emergency, you don't know if you're going to panic or you're going to re how you're going to react. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that is hard probably for many of us who've never been in a situation like what you're describing, like I can't, I can't really imagine what being, uh, disoriented in that environment would be like, like, how do you not know you're upside down? Like I've heard people in avalanches don't know if they're upside down or right side up mm-hmm. and that they have to spit and look at the gravity to tell. It makes a lot of sense. I, I can't really imagine <laughs> it, but I believe it's true. And what you're describing is the same thing that, you know, when you spin around that somehow well, you lose your the helicop- orientation. The helicopters don't do good upside down though. No, no, but they, but they're swing, but they swing around a lot. You've got the, you've got the whole, you know, you've got forward, back, side, side. Um, you've got all the, the main axes there. We just don't do the upside down one. Not not much lift across there. So what would a situation be like for, you know, in, in a helicopter where, uh, you override the instruments with instinct? So it is possible that um, you could have uh, instrument failure, but typically it's just going to be one. Like my, I have an, what's called an attitude indicator, which I think is awesome as a motivational speaker. I'm like attitude indicator. We all have an attitude indicator, right? So um, we can talk we about, need one. we can talk about that. <laughs> we need, yes. We, we, is that one of those old mood rings are that you, we had as kids, right? So yeah, just, we, we should tattoo <laughs> one of those things on our foreheads. Right? Maybe right <laughs> So um, we have an attitude indicator that tells us, are we turning? Are we forward? Are we back? It's kind of that little airplane that shows level. And oh, yeah. we have, uh-huh. but we have one on my side and we have one on the other side for the other pilot. They're separate. They're not slave to each other. They are completely separate instrumentations. So they're, so they're independent on purpose. Correct. So, so they don't make a mistake. So business-wise, how are you building redundancies in that are telling you, as you're monitoring things and saying, okay, this one isn't going to affect us, but if it does this, it will. So again, it goes into that kind of the pre-analysis mode and preparation. And, and I, I can't 
tell you how many businesses that I speak to and I go into and they don't have any kind of like um, for PR or planning, they don't have this anticipation guide. They should have this guide of like all the stuff that could go wrong. So that way they're not scrambling in an emergency. So I had emergency procedures that I had to know in the helicopter. Do you have emergency procedures in your business? That's a pretty fascinating thing. You know, in business, what typically happens is like if you have a business emergency, like a PR disaster, you typically would hire a specialist firm. You wouldn't have those specialist people on staff. So now, of course, a lot of people don't even know where to go to get them. But right. You know. And the thing is, how long is it going to take you to respond? Yeah. So if you have, I mean, now with the speed of social media and the speed of business, if you're waiting 24 hours, 36 hours until you respond to something that's going on virally online, you're in trouble. You're so far behind it. Your damage is huge. So wouldn't it be better as a strategic plan at some point to sit down and have a meeting and say, okay, let's, let's, let's brainstorm every contingency of what we can even possibly imagine that could go wrong and figure out our responses and create that guide now. So hopefully you never need it, but it's kind of like insurance, isn't it? Well, that's what that's, listen, that's what everything we're talking about is insurance, mm -hmm. lawyers. I mean, you know, you don't always, you don't always need to enforce a contract, but if you need one, that's what the attorney's for. You don't always need insurance, but if you need it, you need it. So, and, and all this kind of stuff is, is what we're talking about. That redundancy, uh, you don't always need it, but when you do, you do. So mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's, it's awesome. So, so 80 to 90% of your stuff is muscle memory. It's reflexive. It's automatic pilot. It happens by itself. Um, and probably a lot of that sort of thing happens in business too, yeah. which by the way, uh, is not always a good thing. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, I think there's a difference between the strategic anticipation autopilot, because you know, this is, this happens, this happens. Right. And then there's the, we're not planning anything. We're just going to wait until something happens and then re react. It's kind of reactionary instead of, instead of uh, strategic with that. And I think it's a really, it's a big choice that every business has to make is like, how strategic are we going to be? Or are we just going to wait until something happens and then try to create something from scratch? And then the, we know what the problem is with that, right? Well, you know, to me, it sounds like uh, it's about being on the offense instead of on the defense. You know, you're better off to be proactive and on the offense than you are to be scrambling and reacting all the time and, and try to, you know, dance around and figure out what to do on the fly. Um, that right. always is a, is pun, a, is a poor intended. situation. Pun intended on the fly, right? Yeah, no, pun, pun intended. <laughs> there you go. Abs absolutely. But I know you like your baseball, so I like the offense defense one too. Yeah. So. Well, that, listen, that's the whole thing. So it's, you know, there's a, there's a whole, uh, to me, it just, uh, it just makes sense that uh, the way you get on the offense is you do things on purpose. You're deliberate. You take steps on purpose. You're, you know, you take action and, and you move forward. And that, that really works. It's and so what you're describing is positive, good. proactive strategy to towards yeah. getting you to remember that time on target, where you want to be when, well, in order to be where we want to be, we got to do this and you got to break it. Like we would break it in half. Where do we need to be half that time, half that time, half that time, half that time down to the minute. So we knew where we needed to be. Well, it's, uh, I've, I've never seen a business, um, do what you're describing very well. I mean, they, some, some of them try, uh, it ends up being a lot of red tape when they, when they kind of get 
start trying to have that much control. Mm-hmm. Um, how much latitude were you given as a pilot and how much were you just, you know, instructed what to do and you had to do the instructions because there really, there are different management styles in business and it's a lot different than the military, mm-hmm. but did you have any latitude or were you pretty much uh, instructed what to do and you did it? Yes. <laughs> so, but it looked like this, Elizabeth, actually they called me chief Mac. So chief Mac, we need to go, we need you to take the general. You're going to pick him up at this time because that's her, his guidance. And he needs to be at this particular point in, on the GPS um, at this time. That would be the guidance. So we knew where we're starting and we knew where we had to be time on target. Everything in between, it would be generally left to the, the pilot and the pilot in command at the team to plan and coordinate. So what, what things, what things are those? What are, what are some of the, what, what are so, examples of what needed to do? So do we need to fly instrument mode and get it to the nearest land, land landing, landing, um, you know, airfield and then get that general from the airfield by car or if the weather was bad, if the weather was good, do we, you know, can we fly, we could fly this way straight there or do we have time and want to take them around the lake and do a scenic route or do we want to, you know, um, ha- add some flex time in in case the the general wants to do something, go see something else. I mean, those are all things we had to factor in. Well, if, if you had if you had a certain time on target, mm-hmm. and the general said, "I want to go see uh, something. I want to look out the window at something, whatever it is, uh, mm-hmm. sightsee or whatever the thing is." Did you have the latitude of of doing that, or were you absolutely on a, on a schedule that you couldn't deviate? So from? we would never fly so fast that we didn't have a reserve and we didn't have that cushion. So we always left a little, little bit of reserve back so that we could be responsive. Cause the, the worst thing you want to do is have a general on board and tell them no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you can't, if you can't, you know, they're basically in charge of your budget. Well, listen, so the, basically that was your, that was your client. Was or your customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that was your customer. They got on board and, and you were, your job was to take care of that person and, and handle what they needed handled. Like all of us have customers or clients. Yeah. Uh, but it, again, it's a cool parallel, it is. you know, and, and one of the things about leadership uh, somebody was on the show, Yoram Solomon, who you, I know you know. I know. And he said the greatest thing. He said, you know, the leader's job is to point to the mountain. There's many mountains out there. You point to the mountain. So we're, this is the mountain I want you to climb. And then it's the team's job to use their great skills to climb the mountain. And, and that's kind of what you're saying is that you must be at this location at this time. And how you get there, uh, we're a little flexible about that. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it really... Uh, too much of what happens in, in leadership is micromanagement, uh, never a good thing. And, and first of all, people don't feel good about themselves when you do that. They don't grow when you do that. But also, uh, it, it just the, the micromanager can't anticipate all the things that are going to happen anyway. And we, so, would, we would have to go to our commander. Somebody has to sign off the mission. We, ha- we would do a risk assessment, a safety brief, and then our flight plan. And someone would have to sign off on that mission, usually our commander right? Which our commander's like three levels below the general. <laughs> so it's still pretty down here, but he'd have to sign off and he would, and he, you know, his job would be to trust us and our planning, but it would also be to troubleshoot it. Well, what happens if this happens? Well, what happens to this? Have you covered this contingency? And to make sure that we thought through everything. So that wasn't micromanaging, but that was, we would brief him on what we wanted to do 
And he would be that devil's advocate saying, okay, have you thought about this? What about this? Listen, you know, the the uh, the commander asking questions is not micromanaging. No, big difference. I mean, you know, I mean that person, they just want to, you know, just bounce it off, make sure you didn't forget anything, make sure everything is is just right uh, along the way, whatever, because you're in a critical job. Uh, and, and in our business community, same thing, the, the boss should ask questions, the boss should be fully informed. Uh, you know, the boss asking questions is not necessarily micromanaging, but it can be if they butt into the uh, affairs a little too much. And, and I think not everybody knows where the line is. A lot of us know where it is, or we have a better sense about where it is, but not everybody's good at that. And uh, maybe more clear in the military. I think it depends on your level of, and I'll use Yoram's word there, is trust. The level of trust that you've, you've earned with them. So if you're a brand new to a job, and your boss is asking a lot of questions, it's because they don't know how you think and how you react and what you've done yet versus someone who's proven and on the job and been on the job for a while and has, has proven themselves um, is probably given more latitude. And I think where to have that same level of expectation of every person is, is false, isn't it? Well, that's a, that's a great point. You know, we kind of live in a world where everybody should be treated the same, <laughs> but not all people can be treated the same because not all of us are the same. We're all different. And some people deserve a little bit more latitude and some people haven't earned it yet, like you're saying. Uh, it also kind of comes back to the company's level of training. How much training does the company provide? You were provided uh, the best training on the planet, no doubt about it. And, and you didn't get out of that course until you did what they needed you to do. Um, we tend to provide uh, training like two hours here, three hours there. You go to college, you learn something, but you don't you don't always get the specific training for the company the way that uh, you might need it. Uh, that that's that's a concern too, wouldn't you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think onboarding. I'll, I'll tell you, the military does great training someone into their job, but they really don't do a good job moving them out and transitioning them. And that's really where there's been a lot of failures. Between, you, mean, you mean to a, to another kind of job inside the military? No, another when you get out of the military, you're oh. so they're not known. They're known for really good. Like they'll spend a year in flight school, but when it was time for me to leave the military, and because I was injured, I, leaving the military, um, you know that that exit interview, they didn't do a good job with that. So, so what do you, what do you think they should, there should be a couple month, uh, you know, decompression chamber to, to get back into, <laughs> into the civilian life? Kind no, of, yeah. I'm, I'm not making a joke. I mean, no, I mean, I mean, you've got, there's a whole different mindset in the military. I mean, when you're in the military, your housing is taken care of. You make friends really easy because you work with people. You all got the same training. So there's a level of commonality and trust. And then you go, okay, you're done here. Turn in all your equipment. They're more concerned about turning in all of our equipment and assigning in our equipment than they are about being us being productive, active people in society and how we're handled that. And then we're, we're seeing record unemployment rates for veterans and women veterans. Wow. So, I mean, I, I know that, I know that military people just make some of the best employees. I mean, they're, they're, these, they these people are, I mean, our people are so highly trained. They're like machines. They are, they're fantastic. I, I've heard one great thing about them after the next as, as uh, officers of companies, uh, extraordinary things. And I can, I totally get what you're saying here. I'm, I'm, I'm totally, I'm listening to this. I'd never really thought a lot about it before, but it's outside. It's a different world. 
you know, it's a very disconnected world that we live in out here. You were in a very uh, tight network, very connected place. You all had a lot in common, you know, and, uh, and here there, by the way, there's a lot of different agendas on the outside Mm -hmm. and you can't necessarily identify those agendas uh, so easily. Well, I think too, for hiring, like they're doing a better job now. My understanding is than when I got out, which was maybe 19 years ago. Um, so they, um, you know, but like translating what we do as a job into civilian speak, right? I, there, there's, it's a difference of language. You know what? (laughs) That's true. That's true. There's, there's kind of a language differential. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we, we use a little bit uh, different language. I mean, a lot different language, actually. I mean, we actually just use English. You guys use, uh, su- <laughs> you use supercharged English. Acronyms. <laughs> we have an acronym for everything, I know. right? So, I know but it, it's a training thing. It's a mindset thing. It's a society yeah. thing. It's, um, you know, I was really surprised. I got a job right away when I got out of the military. Uh, luckily, as a pilot, you only, you only fly two or three days a week. The other days you are expected to do other jobs. So my background in the last, my last assignment over in Germany was uh, import, export, and inventory management, which then let me get into um, my first job in inventory management and at a warehouse in 124 degree heat in the summer. <laughs> so I'm doing this warehouse job and, um, you know, they the translation was lost and it took me almost a year before I even made a friend because everybody here went to school with everybody and already had their friends. So it was very, for me, it was a very lonely time as in business, right? You don't think about that, right? But there's a lot of isolation when you're coming from such a close knit community and then starting into a new company or corporation and there's not a lot of support. Yeah. Well, listen, this has been uh, <laughs> wonderful. I, I, I just, I love hearing these kinds of stories. I, I, I love hearing from uh, service members like yourself. I mean, I'm so proud of you. Uh, you've accomplished so much. You've contributed to our country so much. Thank you so much for all that you've done and, and to all the service members who've done such a great job. But, uh, but you've also given us the inside track on, on decision-making and planning and rehearsing and strategizing and anticipating uh, there's been a lot that's come out of this. And and I just want to tell you, thank you very much. And I'm, I'm sure that our listener base uh, probably feels exactly the same way. Thank you for doing that. So Elizabeth, thanks for being with us today. Uh, it's my honor to serve our country and uh, to be here with you, Joel, and all the listeners. So thank you. Well, listen, over and out. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joel Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 72000. That's 72000 and download your free copy today. 
Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.